Well, good morning. I believe all of us are probably know that Harley and Donna are on vacation, and he's not here this morning. And uh, we have Zach Abney with us that's going to bring our message this morning. And you'll notice on the front of your order of worship, it kind of gives a uh, short bio about him. He has spent some time in Uganda, and he shared in the adult class this morning uh, the work that's being done over there in Uganda. And, and Zach, we thank you for sharing that with us. One thing that is not mentioned is that he's my future son-in-law. Yeah. I don't. I don't know exactly what he's going to preach on uh, this morning, but uh, he asked my advice, and I just told him to preach the truth. So he said he can do that. And one thing that uh, is not mentioned in the bio is that he played football at Harding University. And I'm not really sure how fast he was on the football field, but he was pretty quick in asking our permission that he could marry Casey. (laughs) That, That happened the second time we met. Before he gets up here, I would like to uh, read some scripture out of Philippians. And let's reflect on these words that I read. And then we'll have one more song before Zach comes up. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Good morning. Can everybody hear me? Stanley, thanks for your introduction. I'll tell you what, I wasn't the fastest guy on the field, but if you had put Casey in the end zone, I may have been a little quicker. I, uh, I am super thankful to be here this morning and uh, to be present with you, Casey's extended family. And um, I don't take it for granted that I've been given this opportunity to talk a little bit about what I do in Uganda and a little bit about what we do and a little bit about what we, as a body of Christ, are called to do. But before we get into any of that, I'd like to start us off with the prayer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the Lord's Prayer, if that's okay. So let's, let's bow our heads. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
Lead us not to temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. My name is Zach Abney. Uh, you'll know me because I go with Casey Shirler now. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about who I am and, and where I came from so you have some context for why I'm up here before I get into our message today. When I was 10 months old, my parents moved us to Jinja, Uganda. Uganda is in the middle of Africa, right on Lake Victoria, and it borders the Nile River. Um, I grew up about 100 yards from Lake Victoria and a few hundred yards from the source of the Nile. Uh, and that's where I spent my childhood from 1994 to 2000. And while my parents were there, they were primarily planting churches, spreading the gospel, attempting to make disciples. Um, but what they realized early on was that it's really difficult to preach to people who don't have a full stomach, who can't pay for their children's school fees, who are unable to pay for their children's clothes, don't know where their next meal is coming from, don't have clean water. It makes it really tough. And so what they decided to do towards the end of their time there is start this organization that we call Kibo Group. Now, Kibo comes from the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. In 1997, my dad and his friends who were there at the time decided to climb Mount Kilimanjaro as a team-building experience. It was nearing the end of their time, and they got to the peak, and the peak of Kilimanjaro is called Kibo. And they took communion there on a Sunday morning, looking down over East Africa, and they said, we want to help people reach their peak. Not only do we want to do that while we're here, but we want it to be done after we leave. And that's where our, our name comes from. We strive to help people get to their peak. And we'll talk a little bit about what exactly we do in Uganda at the end of the sermon today. But most of my time today won't be spent necessarily on just Uganda. So when I graduated from Harding, um, I immediately wanted to work for Kiba. I'll tell you, I didn't want to work for an organization that my parents started. That's lame. I looked everywhere I could. I really did. I studied this stuff in school. I read every book I could find on the subject, on development, on missions. But what I found was that Kibo, our little organization, though we don't do it perfectly, and there's lots of other good organizations, do it in a way that's, I think, special and unique. So I came on in, in 2016 as the director of development, and part of my job is to go around sharing what we do sharing our view of missions. Um, and I've talked with churches and schools and youth groups and whoever will listen to me. So you're stuck this morning. Today we're going to talk a little bit about mission. And I want to talk about mission through the eyes of the cross. How do we build a culture of the cross, a cross culture that we can take a cross culture anywhere that we go? Before I do that, I'm going to show you one little picture of... Uh, are we working here? Oh, there we go. I'm quick on the trigger. There's a picture of Casey and I. I just got to take Casey over to Uganda. And part of what we did there is we did something called a Ugandan introduction. And this is where the bride usually brings her future groom to her family to introduce them. And the groom is supposed to bring a dowry. And I was explaining to everybody in Uganda, well, they've got cows. I can't give them cows. I can't come with cows. And they were saying, what are you going to give them? What do, you got, what do you give a dad that has everything that you could possibly give in Ugandan culture? Cows and a farm. And so I settled on a goat and a chicken in case he promptly named them. <laughs> she was really hesitant to let go of Clucky. We don't know where he went, and I don't, I don't know. It's feeding someone. So today we're going to talk a little bit about mission. Um, three things. I know growing up in the Church of Christ, if you don't have three bullet points, it's not a real sermon, right? 
And so I've got at least three bullet points that we're going to work through. Mainly they're who are we called by, who are we called to, and how do we carry it out. But before we get into those three things, I want to make sure we're on the same page. I'm not an expert. I say that with authority. (laughs) I'm a learner. I'm experiencing this stuff. I'm in it day to day, but that doesn't mean I'm an expert. And when I leave today, I'm not going to leave you with answers because I don't have them. My goal today is to ask you questions, to challenge your thinking and your thought process when it comes to mission. And hopefully we leave here as a community that's asking those questions together. On the same page? We good? All right. I want us to be capable of building up the kingdom of God, not just in Uganda, not just in Ecuador, not just down the street where you guys are going today, but anywhere that we find ourselves at any time. So, point one, who are we called by? This, to me, is the easiest of the three points that we're going to talk about. The story of God has always involved him sending people to those in need. Moses, Jonah, the prophets, Paul, Barnabas, there's a laundry list of people who God has called from their current situation, into mission. We, the people in this room, receive this call in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Christ calls us, his believers, to go and make disciples of all nations. We receive it again in Acts 13, 47, when Paul and Barnabas say, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, so that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. If we desire to be Christ's followers, what that means is we participate in the call to spread the good news, the gospel, with those who have not yet received it. When you go under in baptism, you accept that as part of your contract. And it doesn't mean you have to go to far off lands. It doesn't mean you have to even leave your culture. It does mean you are called to live a life that draws people to the cross, that draws people near to God. It gives off, as Paul says, very poetically in 2 Corinthians, the aroma of Christ. We are to be the aroma of Christ wherever we go. It's not always loud, but it's always there. If we desire to be Christ's followers, we are called into mission. You are called into mission. Just a couple minutes in, we're done with the first bullet point. We might beat the Baptist to lunch. Um, That's our goal today. Question two, who are we called to? Um, This one's a little trickier, and I think we can probably agree we're called to reach everyone, right? But the Bible does seem to direct us clearly to engage the poor and those in poverty. In fact, that word is mentioned over 300 times throughout the Bible. And it's a more comprehensive term, poverty or the poor, then we tend to give credit to. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we continue. But here's a few examples of, of some texts where we see this call, this call to these people. Proverbs nineteen seventeen: Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. The portion of Isaiah 58, If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, Your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will be like the noonday sun. Romans 12, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor in serving the Lord. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So who are the poor? 
When I say that word poverty, what's the image or word or even definition that comes to mind for you here in this room? For me, it's a child in Uganda. The image that I see clearly when I hear the word poverty, I think of a child in Uganda sitting with tattered clothes, flies on his eyes, on a street corner with a distended belly. That's my image. And it's clear to me when I hear that word. But for you in here, it might be different. And that's okay, but I want you to be thinking about it. Poverty is complex. We all have different answers for it. And we don't have to have the same answer. In fact, James Walsh once said that no single word, perhaps in the entire tradition of Christian spirituality, has proved itself so capable of creating such instant confusion as the word poverty. And it's easy to see why. When you start talking to people about it, when you start reading about it, Isaac Prolotensky defines poverty as diminished personal and relational well-being. Jacumar Christian, a noted author on this topic, says that it's a disempowering system. And if you were to Google poverty, you'd come up with hundreds and hundreds of different definitions. The U.S. government says it's two adults, two children, and less than $24,036 in a year. The World Health Organization in Uganda says that it's less than $2 per day. And they're all correct, right? One of the only things people in this field agree on is that there's no single definition, which makes it pretty hard to fight. How do you fight a problem you can't even define? In her book, Bridges Out of Poverty, Ruby Payne tackles this issue, and the definition she arrives at as somebody from faith is that poverty can be defined as a series of broken relationships. And that can sound a little complex, but bear with me and I'm going to flesh that out for all of us. Poverty, she says, shows itself in nine different interconnected ways. First, there's a lack of finances. That's traditionally how we think of poverty, right? Somebody who lacks enough money to buy basic resources. Water, food, shelter, clothing, feeling secure, having a place to sleep at night, a roof over your head. Somebody who lacks the ability to do that, that person is financially poor. Yes, but that is not the only kind of poverty that, that, that exists. A lack of emotional health is poverty. A lack of education is poverty. Poor physical condition is poverty. Poor relationships. Poor relationship with your spouse or significant other. Not having any positive role models to look to. That's a broken relationship. No knowledge of social cues, not being trained on how to engage responsibly. A lack of appropriate coping strategies when we face difficult situations in our life. And a lack of spiritual life and purpose, which I think we can all in this room agree is the most important and interweaves itself into all of those types of poverty. Poverty is complex. And it doesn't necessarily look the same for all people. Some of the richest people I know are some of the poorest spiritually, have the poorest communities, have the poorest relationships. Have you seen that? And some of the poorest people I know have the best communities and the best spiritual life. If we decide we're just going to define poverty as financial, we have missed the point. We're not called to just those who don't have money. We're called to those who have broken relationships. And that's difficult. That's a lot harder to solve than just handing somebody ten bucks. It's a lot harder to solve than just building a building. 
It takes a lot more effort. It takes a lot more energy. And it takes a whole lot of patience. But just because there aren't any easy solutions for poverty doesn't mean that there aren't any solutions for poverty. I'm only standing in front of you today. I only feel comfortable standing up here today because I believe there are solutions. But in order to find that solution, there's an important question I think we need to ask ourselves first. Before we decide what we're going to do for others, I want to be introspective. I want to look at ourselves for a moment. Because if if we're not just talking about poverty as financial, then all of us are dealing with it. I want to ask the question, what is your poverty? What are you lacking? As you arrive at church this morning in this body of believers, all of us are lacking something. All of us have a broken relationship with something. We might have a broken relationship with our finances, yes, but we might have a broken relationship with our spouse. Broken relationship with our children. A broken relationship with the way we cope with things that are hard. And I want to ask you, how do you want somebody to deal with your problem? Somebody walked up to you and said, I'm going to fix your problem and here's how. What would your reaction be? And so we, before we get into defining other people's problems and saying, here's what's wrong. Here's what's wrong with you. we got to fix. Listen up. I want us to be introspective and say, how would I want to be approached if that was me? We're called to those who have broken relationships with us, with the world, and most importantly, with God. So what is the solution to all of these broken relationships and poverty? We need a real sustainable solution to all poverty. It can't just work for the people in Uganda. It needs to work for you. It needs to work for me. It needs to work for the people of Lawton, the people of Oklahoma City, the people in Ecuador. It needs to work for everyone. And I believe there's something that can. And I think we all do. I believe that the gospel can literally, tangibly breathe life and freedom into people and restore relationships in an astounding way. But I'm not sure we're framing it right at the moment. At least I'm not hearing it. See, when you remember the Sabbath, you have energy to work throughout the week. You don't get burned out and you can get recentered and refocused. You spend time with your family. When you honor your father and mother, you learn how to function and participate with your superiors. You learn how to take orders and directions from your future bosses. You learn how to show up on time for work, right? And there's punishment if you don't do those things. That requires a right relationship between a parent and a child. When you don't commit adultery, you don't tear families apart and create conflict. When you don't steal, people trust you. When you don't covet, you're not content to spend your money on things you don't need you can save put towards your child's education you can save up for your food save up for your gas money you're not you're not just buying every new thing that comes out when you choose to honor god above all others you have a purpose a purpose that cannot be taken from you a purpose that drives you to do good things for people Not because of selfish reasons, but because you desire to show them the type of love that you have been shown as a Christian. 
When you live in a community, a church, with other Christians, you have a support group, you have a network of people who can help you out financially, emotionally, spiritually. You have role models, you have shepherds, you have leaders, you have people speaking wisdom and truth to you. You have people who can help you move. But if you listen to people outside of our faith talk about the laws that we'd have, you'd think that we eat oatmeal for every meal and walk out of a prison cell every morning. It's not the case. We're the ones with freedom. Because we don't get tied down in things that distract us and rope us into that circle of poverty. The things that this world wants us to have that Christ explicitly said and that God said to his people back in the Old Testament is that if you do these things, you will have freedom. You will have the best life. We don't do them because it's not enjoyable to do that other stuff. We do it because we know it's more enjoyable to have right relationships with others, with God, and with ourselves. Right? They aren't laws that restrict us. They are laws that give us freedom. And when we live the way that Christ lived, we get to experience that to its fullest extent. But he didn't just live to the law, right? He lived through the law to love. He didn't just say, I'm going to do these things so I can sit back in the temple and quote scripture. He said, I'm going to do these things because it's going to free me up to do the things that matter. To reach the people that matter. To reach the outcasts. We don't live to the law. We live through the law to love. And what we have in this building, in this space, this body, not just in this room, but this body that took communion this morning together, not here in this church only, but my brothers took communion nine hours ago in Uganda. What we have in this space is special. It is a network capable of addressing every kind of poverty you can find. The only way to fix broken relationships, to really fix broken relationships, not to just put a band-aid on things and move on to the next thing, but to really fix it is to follow the example of Christ and live a life unshackled from the traps of this world. So we've got a solution. We know who we're going to. How do we share it? A wise man once said that above all in development, if people do not wish to be helped, leave them alone. This should be the first principle of development and helping one another. The first principle is that you respect the other person enough to let them tell you no. Another guy said it in similar words. Want to help somebody? Shut up and listen. As people from a Western culture, a culture that has wealth, that has success, that is efficiency-driven, we have science that backs everything we do, we have data for every decision we make, we oftentimes want to rush in and engage people and give them our solution. Is that right? Feel like that's fair? I'm going to give you a hypothetical. If you walked into a doctor's office and you had a chest cold and you had a sore throat, You had a runny nose and a little bit of a fever and it had been going on for five or six days, long enough that you'd go to the doctor, right? 
you'd walk in and the nurse would, would take your blood pressure and she'd check your nose and she'd ask a few questions. She'd get a general understanding of what you're doing. She'd be typing it on the computer. And then she leaves and an hour and a half later the doctor walks in. And what if that doctor walked in and just had a packet of pills? He didn't even say anything to you. He just said, there you go. Take those. I think, what did I just pay for? He didn't ask me any questions. Is this going to help me? What do I do if they don't work? Do I come back? He just tossed me a packet of pills and left the room because of what the nurse told him about me. Right? And unfortunately, that's the way we engage a lot of the world as Americans. I see it all the time when we're working in Uganda. We come into a situation and we say, you need a well? Have a well. Plop. And we leave. We don't ask any questions. There's 50,000 broken wells in Africa. That number was last checked in 2015. There's got to be more now. 50,000. That's $360 million worth of donor money for wells that is no longer working. 5,000 of those wells just in Uganda. We see it all the time. There's an organization that came in from Europe a few years ago. We're working in a village called Cindy. We were drilling one well in that community. And our process takes anywhere between 8 to 14 months. We're slow and we're steady and we're good. And this organization came in with $500,000 and they said, we're going to drill 50 wells. So they hired, they contracted out somebody and they drilled those 50 wells. Two years later, there's one well that works in that community. You want to guess whose it is? They didn't ask questions. They didn't ask any questions. They just came in and assumed they knew the problem and they drilled a borehole or a well. We can't be that way as Christians. Our purpose is not to find solutions. It's to pursue relationship. It's to be the doctor who comes in when we hear a prognosis from the nurse and ask additional questions. We ask, what's your heart health history? Have you been around anybody that's sick? you smoke? What's your activity level? Does your family have a history of diabetes? Why does he do those things? Because those symptoms that I have could be 50 different things, right? Something as serious, as, as common as a, a cold, and as treatable as a cold, to something life-threatening. He's trying to get at the root of the problem, And the only way you can do that is by being in relationship and by asking questions. You cannot just assume you're at a place and then provide the solution. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, what Stanley read earlier, we see the story of of Jesus in a new light. We see this, have your mind among, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He had all the answers. He did not count it as a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself of those answers and came down and participated in life with us. As Jeff said earlier, he who is rich became poor for our sake. To solve poverty, 
to solve our broken relationships. God did not send the UN. He didn't send a president. He didn't send a king. He didn't send a political party. He didn't send a nonprofit. He could have snapped his fingers and immediately fixed our problems, right? We believe God is all powerful, all knowing, ever present. How did God, in all of his infinite wisdom, choose to solve our poverty problem, our broken relationships? He sent a boy born out of wedlock and into a manger. He sent a boy who asked questions in the temple. He sent a teenager who learned carpentry. He sent a man who lived in a village for 30 years. sent a man who hung out with 12 buddies and traveled in a 300-mile distance on foot. A man who answered almost every question with an intentional and thought-provoking question right back. A man who died naked on a cross. And that boy, that teenager, that carpenter, That man who traveled around created the biggest revolution in the history of mankind. There are more people that ascribe to our faith in the world than any other. How did it start? Did it start with the Big Bang? Did it start with this king who came down on a flaming chariot or this massive solution? No, it started with a boy in a manger who built relationships. We don't need big answers to these problems. We don't need a social media campaign. We need you to be intentional. And we need you to empty yourself of your answers to the point that you would be willing in all of your knowledge and all of your expertise to go to somebody who doesn't know a thing and say, I'm here for you. And that isn't the only time God has done that. In fact, it's a theme that plays out throughout all of Scripture. Creation itself is that very thing. That God would call us into being out of the dirt and say, you can choose to love me or not. Regardless, I will love you. What are we doing when we go to these places? When we go to this home later today to talk with these boys, are we searching for a way to insert our solutions or are we searching for a way to love? See, Christ didn't come to make everybody more like the American Christian. Christ came to make everyone more Christ-like. And there's a difference there I hope you see. We don't have everything right. We can do some things well. I think we do some things well. But God didn't come just to make everybody more like the American Christian because that's the most beautiful version of Christianity. He came to make every culture more beautiful. And he is capable of doing that. And when we engage in other cultures who have been made more beautiful through the same truths that we have, we get to see his love in new ways. Have any of you guys ever been on a mission trip where you experienced worship in a way that was profound? And I'm not saying that we willy-nilly follow every culture. That's not what I'm saying. There is truth. But within that truth, there is the opportunity for us to learn from people, to appreciate people, to see others as made in God's image. And we're not called 
So we're not called when we come to somebody who we deem to be other, to be deemed to be in need of mission, to say, we've got all the answers, here's how you do it. You are called to pick up your cross. In fact, I'd go as far as to say, you are called to hop on the cross if it helps keep them off it. Because when you do that, you will introduce people to the living God in a way they cannot experience otherwise. And that is really easy to say and really hard to do. It's easy to let our ego and desire for a worldly victory drive us. It's easy to think that surrender is not enough. Let me tell you what, God does a lot with loaves and fishes. Now because I'm a Christian, I believe one day everyone in the world will have access to clean water. That one day every parent will be able to provide for their children. That there will be peace on earth, that poverty will be no more. But it is not a blind hope. We are called and I desire to participate in a type of ministry that does not just count our spiritual lives as the most important, but also says, I will wash your feet. We're not called just to pray more. We're called to live through the law into love. We are called to participate because Jesus cares about our health. He healed us. He cares about our well-being and He cares that we care with other people because that is how He is able to truly express His love to those who do not know it. It's not through an argument. It's not through a sermon. It's through you hopping on your cross and saying, I care about you more than I care about me. And so I stand before you and say this with full confidence that the Spirit of the Lord is upon us because the Lord has anointed you. The Lord has anointed us as His people to proclaim good news to the poor. He is sending you, He is sending us to proclaim liberty to those held captive by the things of this world. And to help those who are blind to this truth recover their sight. To set free the oppressed and pronounce the year of the Lord's favor in their lives. You have the solution to fight whatever kind of poverty you come across. I believe that wholeheartedly. And you have the posture to ensure its maximum effectiveness. Even if the world thinks it's silly and it's not big enough. Your one-on-one relationships change the world. And the best news of all is that there is one who has come before us and carried out this good work and who has left us his spirit when we are incapable. Now the question is, for us in this room, what do we do with the talents that our master has handed us? Will you use the talents God has given you? Will this church use the talents God has given us? Will the body of Christ use the talents we have been given in furthering, to invest in furthering the kingdom? Or do we bury them in the dirt and wait for better days in the return of our master. God has called you into his mission style, into his mission to reconcile the world, to redeem those who need to be redeemed. He has called you to those who are hurting, who are suffering, who are rich, who are happy, who are poor, who are destitute. 
and he has anointed you with his spirit, a spirit which makes all things possible to those who believe and obey. It doesn't matter whether you're in Uganda or Lawton. I hold those things true. So we're going to end today with a quick prayer. I'm going to ask, I think we have some shepherds coming forward who will be available. And as we close out today, I want you to remember those questions. What's your poverty? Who are you called to? How are you called to them? And how did God come to you? Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for giving us this day our daily bread and forgiving us of our sins. Help us to do likewise. Lead us not to temptation, Lord. Help us be kingdom builders. Give us the courage to surrender, to wash feet, to participate in a life that you have called us to in the way that you have so beautifully defined to us through your Son. It's his name that we pray. Amen.